Eduardo Garcia. On. We've been building up to this. We have been, and I, uh, I've actually been showing people the the Yeti films over the last two weeks, but sending links out and getting responses back saying, "Wow, this is a phenomenal uh, little series." And if you don't know what I'm talking about, we actually talk about it in the podcast. But it's uh, Yeti's Hungry Life with Eduardo, and it's really well filmed. And it's free. It's free. It's on YouTube. Each episode's only eight or nine minutes long. I think the last one's ten, but it makes you hungry. And the, the, I think it's episode one. He's catching, uh, I think they're catching trout. I think it's trout. It's been a while oh. since I watched the series. It looks so good. Did he cook over fire? Oh, yeah, on yeah. stone. Yeah. I need to cook on stone more. That's that's what I've decided from watching that. Uh, I was going to say something else. Yeah, so by now, hopefully, you have watched Charged. I know a lot of people have. Yeah. And we've been talking about it probably for the last two or three podcasts, telling everybody... Go watch the film before you listen to this podcast, and I know a lot of you have. But if you haven't, then after you listen to this, <laughs> I, want I to. bet you you'll go and watch it. So yeah, hopefully everyone has, and then this will really give you a further insight into that film. Mm. And, and the man himself. And the man himself, yeah. Yeah, I don't think, uh, because we mentioned him in the last couple of podcasts, I don't think he needs much more intro- introduction than what we've already said, but you're going to be hearing on this show from Eduardo Garcia, recorded in his house in Montana, and then we had dinner with him afterwards. We did, and I've actually been cooking with his Montana Mex. So have I. Uh, there's like salts in that that he gave us, and they're phenomenal, they're really good. Yeah. Don't shove your nose in the jalapeno one, though, because it <laughs> make, makes you sneeze. Yeah, I've had, got all three, and I I think I've probably used them every week since I've come home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just up, the only thing I'm upset about is that we didn't have space for the for weight for yeah, the sauces. sauces. We'll have to rectify that next time. Or Eduardo, because I tried to look, I was looking, and you can get it over here, but it is pretty expensive in the UK to get his. But but all of our American listeners, you've got no excuse. You've got no excuse. Absolutely brilliant. Lucky you. We have a competition winner from two weeks ago, which was the opportunity to win a the latest edition of the Hornady Reloading Manual. I'm going to have to double check um, after we finish recording this to see how many we've got left, but that was either the last one that we have to give away or there's one more. Uh, but anyway, we've given away a heap of them. And the winner is Guy Harrison. And what we asked for was suggestions for new guests to come on the show. We had a whole... Heap of suggestions, a lot of interesting people. We're going to follow up with them all. But the one that really grabbed me uh, and intrigued us both uh, was the suggestion by Guy to interview David Scott Donellan, who uh, runs a tracking school over in the States. But he served in the military in Africa for 27 years, starting his career in the Rhodesian Army. So he seems, from the little that I've read, he seems like an absolutely fascinating man. uh, And I would love to have him on the show. So we're definitely going to reach out to him. And it so, would be another excuse to meet him in the States. It would be another excuse to go over. So, um, shoot us an email, send us a message, Guy, and we will send out your Hornady reloading manual. We had lots of feedback about last week's podcast, about both parts with um, with Attenborough at the beginning and then 
then the invasive species straight after so we had lots of great yeah, feedback Mark. about um, both of these things but in terms of the film as well that was released it made it to nearly every national paper there was in the UK and including Western Australia of all places yeah. so if you have seen uh, uh, in the UK this week David Attenborough on I think I don't know if it wasn't necessarily front pages but it was like a full page full spread page, yeah. uh, inside a lot of the papers on nearly but, in it was in nearly all the Sunday papers yeah then we told you about it first here. Yeah, you did. You heard about it you first. Definitely, you, yeah, heard, you heard, you heard it on it here first. Yeah, but so I, we've been delighted with I that. do like, though, how the media extracted one little piece out of the entire film that they used to, to make... S- yeah, to sell their headlines. To sell their headline, which was they picked out uh, salmon farming yeah. out of the, the, whole, the whole thing, even though when he talks about it, he doesn't specifically mention salmon farming. He lists off a huge... array of uh, problems but that's what they chose to focus on it's a good example actually if you want to see how the media put their spin on it and and it was it was good from our point of view because it was it was absolutely highlighting the plight of salmon but if you want to see the twist that they put on it go watch our film international (laughs) year of the salmon and uh, which is only three minutes and then go and google it or listen to the podcast for last week (laughs) but go and visually like watch it and then google uh, David Attenborough salmon for news, the newspapers yeah. and you'll come up with a heap of them and you'll be able to see what their take has been off the back of that film. I think it's quite interesting to see. It's phenomenal. It just shows you you could be really screwed in the papers <laughs> if like, if you say something wrong and the way that they'll take something out yeah. of it. But largely speaking, I'd say it's all been uh, very positive and it's done the job, which was to raise awareness of salmon around the world. I think it's done that. Definitely. Uh, but it also well, shows... Well, hat off to Sir David because it definitely wouldn't have happened without him. No, there's there's no way. It, you needed someone hi, as high... With the gravity that High profile yeah. as him to say, wake up. Hmm. And hopefully it's hopefully it'll make a difference. New competition? Yes. So we've got a bundle giveaway for this competition. We've it'll, got... It'll be CZ stuff, I imagine. I think a Hornady hat. You'll so. definitely get some CZ mints. <laughs> we've got loads of CZ branded sweeties <laughs> uh, CZ rifles uh, we've been giving away a lot of CZ firearms uh, doormats and we're going to give one away again but not just the doormat we've also got a Hornady baseball cap and there's a CZ uh, like plastic coaster for hot mugs as well which we're going to bundle up together and give it away to you good people yep all you have to do is, after you've listened to this show, just give us feedback. That's it. Just let let us know your thoughts, your feelings on listening to this show. Because mm-hmm. I imagine you'll all have thoughts and feelings about it. So, yeah, just uh, we'll pop a post about it uh, and just find it on Facebook or uh, Instagram or just email us with an email, which many people do, mm-hmm. uh, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Give us your thoughts and feelings about this this show. And well, we'll find a way to select the winner in two weeks' time. Yeah, we'll, we'll find a way. It's not really... There's no criteria. No, as, as just as share starts. with us. Yeah, just share with us. Oh, and thank you, people, for leaving reviews. Oh, I've, I've been no, yeah, there's been quite a few oh. reviews, not just from the UK. Uh, there's been two or three from Canada in the last week and uh, some more from Australia. So uh, thank you for our global audience for supporting us and listening to our shows because... Uh, we are gaining more and more listeners every single week, so welcome if you are a new listener. It's crazy. We actually had our biggest month 
ever for downloads last month. So I, there must be some new people amongst us. So welcome. Welcome <laughs> yeah. to our if, amazing if are, community. If you are a new person, say hello. Say yeah. hello to us. We like hearing from people. Uh, another thank you needs to go out to all of the people who have been following our auction to raise money for the pangolin uh, conservation in Africa uh, because the response has been absolutely phenomenal. I, I haven't totted up the amount from, from all the auctions that are finished, but it's well over £2,000. Yeah, the last time I looked, it was like 2400 and that was a rough estimate. Yeah. Our goal was 2000 A long list of people who we will all thank on, on a future podcast, probably once I come back. When, he comes, when Byron comes back, we'll, we'll have the full list of everyone that has supported this. Yeah. Uh, we've already bought most of the equipment that we're taking out. It's in my suitcase already. Uh, there's a bit of money left over, uh, so we're going to work out what to do with that, but it's all going to go exactly where we, we said it was going to go to, to pangolin conservation. But it's just a testament to the fact that we've ended up raising a whole heap more money than we were kind of <laughs> anticipating, which is just tremendous. Uh, the reaction, and we heard from the guys that we're going to be um, spending some time with out there, and they've been blown away. They've sent a couple of messages in the last week just saying that they can't believe how... Uh, enthused the people who follow what we do are about something like this because they've been involved in efforts before to raise funds and they haven't got anything like the reaction so that's all down to you good people yeah a massive thanks to scott country international because those those guys over there have sorted us out so well in terms of making sure that the money went as far as possible and uh, for advice. And for advice, yeah. On the, on the technicalities of the equipment we were purchasing. So, so you know, we've we've talked about Scott Country before. We've had um, we've had products on the show before, but it's it's companies like these who are local, well, relatively local to us in Scotland, but they are an international company uh, that if you should support. So, if you are thinking about buying equipment be it night vision or they've got backpacks uh they've got wildlife um, cameras like we've just purchased anything like that think about supporting them because they're the ones that are supporting us in these causes mm -hmm. and one thing that we're, we're going to do um going forward in the next couple of months when we try and find a minute to to breathe is we do a lot of fundraising either through our through our coffee stuff we've done uh, in the past like for the Luairi sanctuary for, for the chimpanzees and we're going to put that all up on our website so that you can see all the money that we've raised over the years and, and where it all goes yeah. as well we've just sent a bunch of money over to the guys at salmon and trout conservation from the last year of coffee um, so i know that they've got that in their bank account and uh, we'll be sending out the whole a whole year of um, coffee donations from from each bag that we sell to the GWCT just shortly as well. So there's a lot of things going on in the background that we don't mention necessarily every time. But yeah, in the last well, in the last two years, we've raised thousands of pounds for different causes, and this is all down to our awesome podcast listeners and people who follow us on Instagram and things like that. Yeah, and you guys obviously feel the way we do. Because yeah. it's your hard, hard earned money. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't do it without you. And I think that's it. Did you have anything else? No, I'm off to the Caribbean for a few weeks with the money that you guys <laughs> um, sent us for for the pangolin, and I can't wait to relax. Not really joking. Um, no, like we said, every every penny is being used. Uh, we one thing that always frustrates us, and you see this with charities organizations across the globe in every 
every sector you can think of in aid to wildlife to everything and that is the waste of money and uh, we we like to think that we've managed to keep it small enough that we have specific goals in mind and you know especially with the pangolin thing it was equipment we were you know we wanted a certain equipment we raised more than what we needed so we're you know what do you need next what can we help out with next and you know every penny of what has been raised is going out there being used it's not it's not paying for our flights no we we were going anyway yeah Um, we've got uh, a whole group of guys going out who are going to be hunting with us for a week uh, and our good friend Dia van Delange at Winterberg Safaris, who have all hunted with us on our wilderness hunts, all five of the guys who are going. So that's great. So that's the reason that we were going there. And then we've just taken a bit of extra time so that we can drive up and go and give all this equipment um, to the people on the ground. Yes. I don't know who's going to be on the next show. That's still to be determined. Uh, so who knows? It could be a surprise. Could be an American one. Could be an African one. Could we be an African one? Possibly. We'll just have to leave you in suspense. in suspense. There will be a show, don't worry. We've got a whole heap of them in the bank. <laughs> yeah. For once, this has been... It's crazy when we first started the show. We, In the first two years, probably a year actually, we, we had like three or four in the bank. That's because Byron was actually working offshore to begin with, so we needed to make sure yeah. we had enough. And then, I don't know how, but over the last two years or something, we've just kind of we've never struggled to have people on but there's not always been that many in the bank and this is the first time we've had like 10 ready to go from a trip it's pretty awesome well, hopefully when i come back from africa this time uh, my aim is to get another three yeah so, so that we can augment our american and then we'll be back to i've really enjoyed doing the ones at home like yeah. two weeks ago all about invasive species uh, it was a great conversation what has been amazing is how uh, interested people have been about it. We've received a lot of messages about yeah. that podcast. No, I, I think on paper, it, may, it doesn't necessarily look like an interesting topic to discuss, but I think it was. But yeah, so that's that's basically the plan for the future, if you're wondering. So we're going to basically kind of make sure that everything is split up with something from the UK and then something not necessarily from here. So a wide spread of guests from around the globe. We need to get someone from Australia and New Zealand on because we do actually have quite a number of well, We've had a couple of New Zealand there. podcasts before, we have. when I was out there. Maybe we need an Aussie on. Yeah, we've never done an Australian one. Any of our Australian or New Zealand listeners, if you know someone that would be worthy worthy of coming on, then let us know because we'd like to get an Aussie or a, a Kiwi on Yeah, to talk about something. I don't Kiwi know what. and Aussie things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Thank you very much for listening and we will be back in two weeks. So I'm going to kick off by first welcoming you to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. So thanks to Tyler, who is also joining us on the podcast, who's been our American translator (laughs) this week um, for getting in contact with you and, and hooking us up. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. You have, the, I'm going to start completely off on a limb here, because you have the coolest bog roll holder I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and towel oh, holder. Yeah. <laughs> in the, the, the big antler. Oh, wait. Toilet, toilet paper toilet holder. Toilet. Bowl roll. No, bog bog roll. roll. Translation, please. <laughs> bog roll. Bog toilet roll. paper holder. Yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the big antler there. It's like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And, and that's where the towels are, too. I never thought bog roll probably didn't translate, does it? <laughs> I was following. I knew you were going, but I, I thought you just stumbled on your words because you no. were nervous. And I thought, man, he does this every day. He's not nervous. What the hell did you just say? Bog roll. <laughs> but that was very cool. We're we're in an amazing space here. And what 
your kitchen downstairs kind of blew me away when I walked into it. I Thanks. love the rusticness of it. It's, uh, you know, as, as a chef, um, I've worked in, in all kinds of different kitchens. And um, for this one, it was kind of saying, well, what's the dream kitchen? And then also, what's the practicality of it? And that working out of the home, doing a lot of recipe content, needed a place to, um, to produce content, to film, to take photos. And so that was the beginning of the inspiration for that spot. So it's a lot, lot, lot to ask for because in one kitchen to do all of that and still have it feel homey yeah yeah it, yeah and i'm not not saying my fiance becca loves the fact that every now and then she'll come home and it's a movie set in the <laughs> kitchen and there's lights and oh it's a two-day shoot and it just set up like that but it is what it is for oh, now by the way can you sign this model release yeah. please? <laughs> <laughs> and please don't talk yes <laughs> also quiet quiet yeah. Please. quiet yeah it's kind of hard to know where to, to pick up your story to try and start to explain it to our listeners. But I, I think the best place is at the beginning because from what I know from uh, watching the film, which we're going to talk about in the podcast, is even your story early on and your sort of fight to find yourself and what you really wanted to do and how you sort of dragged yourself from where you'd got to into your life to the, the passion of cooking. I think it is a, re- a remarkable story in itself. So I, if you, I'd love, love to hear that again for our listeners. How I found cooking. Yeah. How you found yeah. cooking. Hmm. Sure. Well, um, I guess because I assume the audience, you know, this is an outdoor community of individuals listening that, um, love, being living breathing the outdoors um and that really cooking for me um the first dish i can ever remember making was trying to make french fries and i was like i don't even know 12 years old or 11 years old and the scenario is it's summertime you're not in school all your buddies are over and mom's busy and you're all hungry and you know you, you so you, so what do you do and one of us had the smart idea to just make french fries and another one um Another friend maybe thought they were even smarter and threw up their hand. It was like, well, that that can't be hard. It's just potatoes and hot oil. And so we ended up trying to make French fries, and the oil was not hot enough. And we ended up just with some soggy, flaccid <laughs> chips, <laughs> you know, and you couldn't put enough salt and ketchup on them to make them really be great. But um, so cooking was always from the get-go sort of a um, a exploration without much fear attached to it for me. So, you know, the first deer we ever harvested, um, and, and I should preface, you know, I grew up in a community with buddies that, um, we had the Boy Scouts of America, you know, so we had, we had sort of an organization that was teaching, um, young adolescent boys how to go into the outdoors, but they weren't teaching us really hunting. They were teaching us how to light a fire, how to, you know, put up a tent and sort of these general basic outdoor Do skills. knots and things like that. Yeah, knots and things, um, you know, orientation. Yeah. Um, but no one was teaching us how to hunt and yet my buddy had a 22 rifle and we ended up um we ended up harvesting a mule deer and you know it was such a it was such a crystallizing moment because not only had we just killed an animal but then the reality set in oh all right how so this is dead in front of us and this represents food and meat and that's why we killed it so we can eat it but how do we get from the dead animal to eating and how old are you at this point i think we were probably 11 or 12 oh so you're very very young yeah very it was it was so cowboy it was so irresponsible it was so not thought out 
you know, I think he had a couple rounds, a couple 22 rounds, 22. Yeah. Yeah. Rimfire. Yeah. Yeah. One of them, one of them missed, you know, one of them made it. The the poor animal wasn't dead all the way. I had to actually finish um, putting this thing out of its misery with my knife. And, and so there we are now with the gravity of all this on us at 12 years old. And I share the story, not, not because I'm proud of how we went about it, but because it impacted me moving forward. And, um, and we did, I mean, we, we figured out how to pull, you know, a primal chunk of meat off of this. And we ended up trying to cook it over a fire and, um, it wasn't probably great. It probably wasn't cooked through. We had no idea what we were doing, but it was the A to Z of like, we had harvested we were responsible. We have to eat this. And, um, you know, the coyotes ate well that night because we obviously didn't take it all with us. We sure. didn't even have a house. To, I mean, we could bring a dead deer home to my mom's house. <laughs> it was So from that day forward, those were my early culinary, um, you know, like thoughts. And then you migrate into other things that you can get your hands around, like fishing, you know, and fishing was easy. But a lot of it was taught that we taught ourselves how mm-hmm. to do these. Um, so how that segues into being a professional chef is um, when you're 15 years old growing up in rural Montana, you know, you don't have too many options for work. You can work as a ranch hand. Um, You can work in town, which was 30 minutes away, bagging groceries or pumping gas. And um, my mom was not going to be bringing me 30 minutes into town to work. Um, And, or there is a resort in, you know, within 10 square miles of where I live called Chico Hot Springs. They've been. Are you guys? Yeah, we have sampled it. Okay, so 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 did you go? So if you soaked in the yeah in the pool, and you probably either walked through the bar, through the hotel, or through the grill. Yeah, we were through the bar. Through the bar. Yeah, we we went through the bar. Okay, so so there's the the grill that's attached to that pool. Um, And for everyone listening, this is a a historic mining town, the town of Chico, and um, and there is a hot spring that came out of the mountainside down from the mining town of Chico and they built a pool around that spring. It's crazy. It's insane. And so now it's this full blown (laughs) resort. But back then, I mean, it was the infirmary, it was the hospital, it was the, you know, the nightlife, it was the everything of that town. That was the hub. That was the hub. And, and then, so still fast forward a hundred years, you know, and yours truly it's 1995 and I need a job. And so I, I end up, applying and getting a job as a prep cook and learning how to flip burgers and throw pizzas. And so that, that was my first ever cooking job. And then you fast forward further and I cooked through high school and then I went to cooking school. Um, and kind of like, you know, kind of get, you get stuck. I don't know for anyone else, but I'm sure some, some folks listening, you know, you find a thing that you get paid to do and before you know it you've done it for five years and then 10 years and that was kind of it it was like high school I just realized that cooking was a paycheck which allowed me to buy my first car or allowed me to go buy flies or allowed me to get you know all the things you wanted and needed yeah yeah because no one else is giving it to you you know and then all of a sudden you realize you're in cooking school and you're actually going to get your degree to you know in the culinary arts and then you're like, wow, okay, there's a career attached to this. This isn't just a, like a day job. This could be a career. And then, you know, and it kind of just starts to compound on itself into a little bit of a ball. So what was your what was your next step after you kind of graduated? Um, so graduating cooking school, um, my next step was I had no next step. I was working three jobs, random stuff, like cooking for sure, and then doing um, cooking two different restaurants. And then I was also... Um, 
I was also modeling for a bronze sculptor that one of the waitresses at the restaurant like knew I needed cash and I was like you know struggling and she was like well you can stand naked in front of my buddy you know who, <laughs> yeah. who uh you know is a bronze artist i haven't seen any of those sculptures. Yeah, i was gonna say where, where can those sculptures <laughs> be found i don't know man that's yeah. the scariest thing is i don't know where they went <laughs> they're just somewhere they're in, in the, the world they're in the louvre that is, in that paris kind of strange to think that somewhere someone has a naked bronze sculpture <laughs> you know it's awesome it, it, it may it may seem strange but when you're 19 years old and you are hustling hard to pay yeah. your like i was put myself through school and um oh man it was a racket it was like 12 bucks an hour you yeah. just have to stand naked yeah, yeah. and uh, hold on i just want to say because there's someone listening somewhere who has done this and i know that they're thinking it's hard work so listen i'm gonna stand up right now so I'll never forget the pose, and you guys, you guys like, I'm, I'm gonna like, take a picture here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so dude, no, the, the pose was that I had, I had like my, I had my feet teed into each other, so my right foot into the arch of my left foot, and then your knees kind of like, like falling into each other, mm. and you're still standing. So it's like someone just hit the back of your knees, and you yeah. like caught yourself from falling, and then your hands are like up behind your head like you're doing a crunchy and then you're looking up wistfully like this just, <laughs> and, and you hold that that's hard okay yeah, it's, you, yeah did you take a picture I, of it i did and i'm glad you explained it it's not worth will... 12 bucks an hour let me tell you the, the best way i can describe it is like the peter andre um under, pose in, in, under in the, the waterfall <laughs> yeah. when he's in the that's the best way i can describe it yeah. so that was me trying to make ends meet right okay so and it's not just standing yeah no. Credit where credit's due. Yeah. So, so, but there I am graduating from culinary school, three jobs, trying to make ends meet. And, um, and there was a, a yacht, a pleasure yacht, like a hundred foot pleasure yacht that was in the Seattle Harbor. I was going to school in Seattle, Washington, and they needed a chef. I actually turned the job down and, um, fast forward five months and, uh, got another phone call from that same captain. Hey, Eduardo, it's captain Mark Julo. Um, you know, we are hiring a chef again and, you know, we're, we'll give you one more shot. You're top of the list. You got five days. Let me know. And and I remember hanging up the phone and the job, the premise of the job was basically to, they needed a chef that would be a full-time live aboard crew member. And their, their itinerary, this yacht was, would spend the year cycling down to Panama and back to British Columbia, Alaska. So it'd be, it would do British Columbia, Alaska in the summer, and it would do Mexico, Central America in the, uh, in the winter. And I mean, it, it sounded adventurous. It sounded, it sounds incredible. It sounded incredible. And yet at the same time, I'm 19, I'm 20 years old at the time now. And on the one hand, I have bills coming up soon. I have to pay my student loans. I know I'm already struggling to make ends meet. And yet it's scary. You know, the the fear factor is real. And I think, you know, you've heard so many people say it, but when you're scared to do something nine times out of 10, it means you should probably look further into it, you know? So yeah, so I mean, I took the job, flew down to San Diego, walked on the yacht, had no idea what cooking on a boat was going to be, and um, and that was the beginning of a 10-year career as a chef in the yachting industry. It's hard on a ship. I spent a lot of time on a ship. Okay. I was in the Navy, and uh-huh. it is hard. Cooking, C- cooking oh, wasn't quite as good there, was it? <laughs> God, no. <laughs> Were you on a submarine? No, no, okay. no. I did work on submarines, though, but yeah. I was never on... No, I was on a mine hunter, so very small, so only 52 meters long. Okay, because to your point, you know, they say that the best grub in the service period is Submarine. on submarines. Okay. Yeah. It was, definitely wasn't on his He complained about it, it definitely time. wasn't on maybe, mine. Maybe they're, not they're, Scottish submarines. Their number one food was... Their answer to everything was onions. 
And the one day where I, I almost lost my shit <laughs> was when they put onions in the macaroni and cheese. And I said, he hates to, onions, I, I said to the it. chef, no, because I am a big fan of mac and cheese. I said to the chef, show me one fucking recipe <laughs> in the planet that puts big ass onions in mac and cheese. <laughs> and what did he do? And he just said, eat your food. Yeah. <laughs> true. That's true. Well, I had no option. Where was I going to go? Yeah. Just man up, pick but, the but onions up. My point is, it is hard on a ship because space is always limited, and foods in well, food the, space you oh can actually man. store food, and also the cooking space. Yeah, if you had been, um, so I, I worked in the yachting industry for ten years on a variety of different boats, from larger. Uh, I think the largest boat I worked on was 160 feet, and then I worked on some quite smaller boats. Worked on a few sailboats, and everyone had every boat had their. Um, had a different challenge, you know, to it. Um, the sailboats, you know, working on working on the heel if, if we were under sail or, you know, working on the smaller boats where, you know, I remember having a cutting board like the size of this, uh, the size of this magazine. And it was, you know, maybe like 8 by 8 10 by 10 And initially, when you don't have something, you think, how am I going to do this? And then, so there was, it was, there was a profound moment. There were, prof- there were profound moments in, in regards to me becoming a chef doing it cutting my teeth through the boating career in that you think you need everything you had at the restaurant everything that you had in cooking school and then as you find yourself in a scenario with a tiny cutting board no storage and it's a moving kitchen that's bouncing and bobbing (laughs) and going around you realize that you can you can make anything you can figure it out you just have to remove the mental block that you need anything just work with what you have. The one thing that I will say is I do take my hat off to the chefs. We did have them on board, even though that sometimes it did upset me, their cooking, is that they cooked in any weather there was. Oh, yeah. And and that was the one job on the ship bar, steering the ship, uh, that could not stop functioning mm-hmm. because people still had to eat. Everyone else went to bed and they were still cooking. And you should have seen, some of the waves were insane. That they were, and these guys are massive pots with soup <laughs> trying to stop it pouring over the side. It's it's hard when the weather's bad. It's insane. <laughs> and yeah. scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. But it uh, what, a, what a phenomenal experience, you know. What was, uh, it must have been quite liberating visiting all these places and seeing all the different produce that mm. you could suddenly dream up recipes for oh it's 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 the dream for any 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 gastronome any chef anyone with a passion for eating is to eat their way around the world right um and to get paid to do it as a chef and then not only that so so there's that that's easy that's an easy low-hanging fruit that's beautiful it's like yes i'm gonna get paid to cook and learn cuisines of the world but then there's also the part whereby the boat pulls into pick your port of call anywhere in the world and you have guests on board, so you're hustling, you're working 20 hours a day, it's, it's your on-call, and you're the only crew member other than the captain, really, that has the ability or opportunity to no questions asked, and almost to the point where everyone will support you doing it, say, I, I gotta go get something. They don't know if you're out of garlic or not. I mean, I'm not saying I pulled that card. I may have, but <laughs> to your point of how incredible it was, is that you would show up in Portofino, or you'd show up in Saint Lucia, or you show up any of these ports in the world, and even with the guests on board, often you'd say like Tyler, if you were a guest, and you know, I'd be like, I'm gonna go and get some fresh lobster at the market, and yeah. if you were the guest, you'd be like, Oh, I want to go, yeah. and so now all of a sudden, all right, let's go, and. What a gift. Well, and I remember you telling me in our interview about how that's kind of where you first discovered the cooking outdoors. 
mm. right? And, and sourcing the freshest ingredients. And you started to sort of gain insight into what people were the most interested in having. And, and you started to put those two together with your ability to find fresh ingredients mm. with this experience of being outdoors. Right. So, and, and it was, so yes. So what it was, was being a Montana kid who grew up cooking in the outdoors, who grew up having campfire cookouts, you know, and then all of a sudden I find myself in the markets of the world, very much removed and far geographically from my home. But then it was through wanting to create the most tasty and enjoyable experience for the families and people I was cooking for that um, I realized that, and I was actually just writing a piece about this today, that the one thing I can say after 23 years of professional cooking is that it's layers and depth that are truly the memorable parts of a meal. So it's, 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 it's often not the perfect doneness of a steak, but rather a bite of food that has true depth of some kind, whether it's in the flavor profile or the package with which that food is delivered to you. Right. So then if you can take, let's call simple barbecue ribs, if you can create a meal of barbecue ribs, however, there's to get to the barbecue ribs, you have to leave the boat and you have to get on a little boat and then you take the little boat to the beach. And then on the beach, you've created a sand pit fire and and you've all of a sudden you start layering all these things, experiences that bring someone to the ribs. They may never remember the sauce on the ribs, but they're going to remember that overall it was an experience. You know, and, and I remember, if, if anything, to your point, Tyler, after 10 years of yachting, I left yachting truly in love with the value that cooking has in our lives, that it's so much more than just eating something and feeling full or nourished, that it's the ability to really pass on something heirloom, which is a story or an experience, and that's priceless stuff. And that's what people remember. Yeah. I think so. The most. Yeah. So... I mean, it's it sounds like, you know, the most incredible 10 years. And like you said, it is at that age, it's a dream to travel around the world, especially doing something like that. Although, granted, grafting 20 hours a day oh. on, on a ship or a boat is, uh, you know, it's, that's no mean feat. But what was it that took you out? Was it just you, you'd done your time and you felt that you'd got out of it what you, you needed to get out? What was your motivation for leaving that behind onto your next step? Yeah, um, I think you nailed it. It was it's it was twofold. Um, one of them was natural. You know, naturally, I was no longer in my twenties. I just turned thirty, and and prior, you know, it was maybe twenty seven. I started to realize that my, you know, my my frothing excitement to have that type of a lifestyle was waning, and I found myself more conflicted and or interested in the home based interest my family getting home for more than a week a year and so there was a natural gravity like magnetism back to home just, home was calling i think that, that is like an, the, the it mountains. is an age thing mountains. as well definitely yeah. as you get older i think it becomes a bit more important yeah so it was a mix of like nurture and nature you know that was like pulling me back home and then professionally speaking um yeah it was working you know it's a very demanding industry you know you're you're you are working 20 hours a day and granted when you're not and if you have if you, if you have sort of a normal day of work without guests on board it's it's 9 to 5 you know and it's great cuz you're in the port of nice and you can check out the south of france after your work day at 5 and it has all of those perks but i started to find myself not going out and being these amazing places of the world and i wasn't leaving the boat 
I was staying on my computer, Skype chatting with my family and starting to build business plans with, um, with my partners and dreaming, dreaming about, and this was the ultimate catalyst that actually had me leaving the yachting industry was that my, my passion for cooking was truly becoming something like I had truly fallen in love with cooking at this point. And, um, and I, when you love something, you want to share it with everybody. You know, if, if you found the winning ticket, you, you want to tell everyone about it. I mean, thank goodness for Instagram, right? Like we can just like promote the shit out, get it out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but truly when you're proud of something, you want to share it, you, you know, generally you don't want to hold it back in. And, and it was in my mid twenties that I really fell in love with what cooking is for me, my ability to share like love and my joy with the world. And then I started to realize that, man, I'm like kind of limited. I'm only sharing this with 10 people a day, 15, 20 people a day. And so we started dreaming up um, how to do that on a larger scale. And, and so it was two, two different business concepts. One, develop a TV show that was based on cooking in the outdoors and then a food brand. And together, those would be sort of the next step pursuits that would allow me to share my, my stoke of food and meals with a much larger, larger audience. Setting up a a business like that, or a, a, in the TV show, it's kind of like a business platform. I mean, it's a it's a huge, huge undertaking. undertaking. Yeah, I mean, you must have had a great support network around you to help you leave that life, and now you're back here. I'm guessing in, in Montana, yeah. doing the next stage. Yeah, I as with most things, I um I pushed back on I pushed back on not wanting to do it. I realized that um that there's a ton of work involved and there was a lot of unknown involved. And I'm grateful now reflectively that my, um, my, so it was my brother, my older sister, my girlfriend at the time, the four of us decided that, you know what, um, collectively, collectively we can accomplish the business part of, and it was a simple business plan. You know, it was not what it is today, but it was basically to just bring Latino inspired foods to the fresh farmer's market experience and then potentially have a retail storefront where people could come and get salsa and guacamole and tamales and tacos and fresh Latino foods, Latino foods, free of preservatives, free of chemicals. Like I think when people think of Mexican food, it's refried beans, yellow cheese, tortilla, taco. And, um, and granted that is a part of, that's like Tex-Mex or that is a, that is a version of what we've come to know that food. But I wanted to express the food of my cultural roots, the Yucatecan style and the glorious cuisine that is the food of Mexico. Depth, layers, varied, like very varied and diverse. Um, and, uh, and so it was only with their support, you know, to this day, I didn't write that business plan. It was one of them. I said, I'll do the, re- I'm the chef guys. Like I'll, I'll do the, you know, like I'll do the recipes and that's, and I can bring some capital to this. So it was a team effort for sure to get it off the ground. And that's how Montana Max was born. That's how it was born. Yeah. We, we, on the, I mean, we started, I started tweaking recipes while I was still on the boat, feeding them to the crew, feeding them to guests. Um, so look like guinea pigs. <laughs> they didn't know it. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. A hundred percent. And, and even, um, and, it's and even to the point of on my vacation times at home working on the recipes and we rented a kitchen and so I'd come home crush try to do a couple recipes get some things going and then I would take off on the boat for six months and my sister and Jen um, and my brother Eugenio um, the three of them would have then worked and supported the business in some capacity you know um, it, not how I'd recommend anyone to start a business. <laughs> 
But it worked. It, it, well, it, it, okay. So like to all cards on the table, we were thinking about a farmer's market brand. You know, we, I don't, we were learning as we went, we were making mistakes and learning and fixing them. And so 2011 rolls around and it's like, I decide, okay, I'm going to leave the boat, right? I'm gonna leave the boat and I'm going to focus on this food brand. And, um, my sister had been running it full time. Jen had been doing it. We'd all been doing it from satellite locations. And so to say that it w- it was working, how about that? It was, you know, yeah, every, every working. Wednesday we showed up with fresh yeah. salsa and we sold it. <laughs> I think we were in the, I think for every like jar of salsa, I sold Tyler for five bucks a pint, you know, it would cost us five fifty. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, we were, we were getting our food out into the world, but it was not sustainable. It was, it was not, yeah, it was the beginning. And so at the same time, parallel to this, you're now starting to do some filming. Yeah. So parallel to that, um, we, uh, Jenny Jane actually, um, so she's still my creative business partner, um, in our media group, active ingredient group. And, uh, at the time, uh, we were dating and she, had visited me in Montana on my vacations and had, um, and had been the recipient of many a campfire meal and not just in Montana to be fair, but also on our yacht travels around the world. And cause she would visit me in ports of call and whatnot. And, um, and she actually with friends can worked on me, worked on me for like a year and a half, two years. Hey, Ed, you know, you should, we should do it cooking show for television you know we've been out in the public too many times and had people come up on the riverside walking back to their truck um and just peer over our shoulders and say what are you doing oh, i'm making dinner what are you making oh i'm making this or that and you know it wasn't just a weenie roast on a sharpened stick yeah you know and this was this was pre like you know for everyone listening that is a part of the hunting community now this was like before hank shaw and hunt gather cook this was before meat eater and steve ranella were really out sharing this love of like how to you know eat what you kill before remy warren was doing all these things and thank goodness we have this now right but back then there was not a lot of people doing that and and maybe we were maybe steve was doing it maybe remy was doing it maybe Hank but it, was doing it. Maybe it wasn't public there was no platform there was no way to actually broadcast right and so um, we hired a crew out of Bozeman, Montana to film a reel, a pilot reel for us. And um, we called the show Active Ingredient. And the premise was basically living your best life on an adventure, like a recreation adventure of some kind, whether it was climbing, surfing, snowboarding, straight hunting or fishing. Um, but that food should be an integral part of that adventure rather than running, you know, rather than sort of like, all right, we got to get back to the trailhead by this time to get to food or dinner by that time before the pub shuts it was well let's just bring x y and z with us let's bring a knife let's bring a spice kit and let's wing a grouse while we're out and cook dinner while we're out and about from the point in the story that you're at now what is the the timeline from where the story begins in charged the film where you had your accident yeah okay so um the timeline would be 2011. I had just left the yacht. I was home here in Montana, and we were, as a team, collectively fully focused on Montana Mex, you know, trying to get local stores to pick us up, things like that. Um, and at the same time, I was working with a um, the largest talent agency, really one of the largest global talent agencies called William Morris Endeavor, to represent me. And collectively, we had signed a production company out of Denver, Colorado, 
to film our show and we were going to build our pitch deck and then take it to the discoveries the national geographics the um food networks of the world and you know with great representation like that with a great production company i knew nothing about really any of this other than i just wanted to cook over a fire in cool places and share it with people right is there anything better right is there yeah is there anything better no there isn't and um and so we go through that summer lining up our meetings and October, um, October 13th, we were supposed to be in New York to basically review a contract with the Food Network and, and sell the first season of the show. And um, October is the tail end of the archery season in Montana. And I had been elk hunting, you know, rapidly out any time, any day I could while working at the same time. So I'd go out 5 a.m., do a morning hunt, come home work, go out for an evening hunt. And, um, and yeah, October 9th, 2011, I was out on a morning hunt. And there's there's more to this story, and I know we want to get to other things. So. No, it's okay. no, Please no, no. feel wherever you want to feel. All right, well, well, then I'll share it, and yeah. we can just, you know, we can, we can carve out other things at the end because there's so few people that know this story that on October 9th, 2011, I'm out archery elk hunting and the reason I'm elk hunting beyond just trying to fill my freezer is that that year and that's that fall a friend of mine a dear friend of mine had asked me to cater his wedding and he's a Montana kid Jesse Arneson and um and so I you know I I don't really cater weddings I said yep what do you want the menu and as he's from the flathead region of Montana he wanted um, to start from dessert. He wanted a dessert that maybe had flathead cherries in it. So, you know, kind of like spoke to his roots. And uh, he's like, man, you know, wouldn't it be great if it had like, you know, so this Montana game element. And, I, you know, I was like, well, maybe elk. And uh, and so the, the planning for his wedding was in the summer. And if you're a hunter, as most of you are, you know, when you're dreaming and scheming your adventures, you, you, the way you talk about the hunt is as if you've already bagged something and it's that easy. Right? You're like, oh man, that place is loaded with elk or, you know, there's birds everywhere, you know? And, um, and so when you're dreaming about this menu with your buddy, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. How many people? 150 people. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll bring elk down. No problem. Like we'll do, we'll put elk on the menu. And then thinking that I have from archery opener, September 3rd, I got a solid month until his wedding. Well, I'll get an elk. And of course I don't. So I had to borrow elk meat from like everybody everybody i knew <laughs> like every friend that i knew i mean hey you, you know you, you just shot like a beautiful cow can i have all your backstrap please yeah you know, yeah no problem yeah. exactly well and and you know what i got some good friends so i ended up pulling the wedding off but then after the wedding i'm out hunting religiously every morning and every evening you gotta pay all this out because i gotta pay all this elk back <laughs> Okay, so I just want to preface that that's really the I'm hunting because I'm a hunter and I like to eat game. But on, in that season, 2011, I was out trying to repay some favors. So, which brings me to the moment of 8 a.m., 9 a.m. I have patterned this one herd all season long, and I have they've slipped by too many times. And so I play my cards right this time, and I'm up above them, and I. I see them coming up from the from the hay fields that they're eating on, and I, I set myself up, and it's a you know maybe a couple satellites and a big herd bull and some thirty odd cows, and basically these tricky buggers end up coming to the left of me or the right of me when I thought it would be the other way around, and so there I am at full draw with them walking behind me, 
right? So I'm at full draw and I can hear them walking 15, 20 yards behind me. And you can't turn. And I thought they were coming on this side and they came on that side. No, I can't turn. I'm totally frozen. And so I'm frozen just waiting and, and all I'm, you know, I'm just kind of waiting and, and I think, all right, well, when the last one passes, I'm going to pivot and see what I can do. And I pivot and the last elk standing right next to me, 30 yards out broadside is this beautiful, symmetrical, dark antlered bull elk, six by six, similar to the one that's above us in the office here. And, um, I mean, I pivoted right to the last elk standing. And so my pin is on this elk and the chef kicks in and I don't release the arrow because I borrowed elk meat off my buddy, Chris Robinson, who had made a point because he's a meat hunter to harvest a two year old, you know, like a young, healthy cow. And he couldn't stop telling me how tender the meat was. And it was beautiful because I cooked it at the wedding. And I'm looking at this awesome seven-year-old, six-year-old bull thinking it's not going to taste the same. This I can't, you know, if you, if you loan me lemons, yeah. I'm not going to return apples. No. <laughs> yeah. So I pass on this elk. Wow. Almost nobody knows that that happened on, on, on October 9, 2011. Because after I pass on this elk, I decide to go try some wallows later on in the day. I know you guys are looking at me like, what you pa- like? Why did you pass on this elk? <laughs> no, I, I totally you get it. it. You I know, get it. A hundred percent get it. Okay. It, we we have with the amount of meat that we put in the freezer. I totally understand. Okay. So great. I'm. I, I feel like I'm in a safe place here. <laughs> so I reset for a midday hunt. Um, you know, hoping to go up to some wallows I know of, and on my way to the wallows, um, I end up coming across this. Uh, I end up coming across this metal can that's in the middle of a drainage about three to four miles from my truck and um and inside this can and think of a 50 gallon oil drum cut in half in the ground overgrown with with grass and um inside this can is what looks like a toupee just black fur or hair and i can see sort of very small fine claws so, you know, ha- maybe half inch long. And it looks like the remains of a dead baby black bear. And so, you know, really not thinking anything more than I would love to grab a claw or two, throw it in my pocket and keep going. I grab a knife off my hip. I throw it in my left hand. I reach down with both hands to grab one or two of these claws. And, um, you know... Like, that's the last memory I have on October 9th, 2011, prior to being electrocuted by 2,400 volts of of electricity. And so many people would have probably done the same thing. I dare say, if I came across that, I'd be like, yeah, I'd probably have done the same thing. Yeah. 100%. Hundred percent. You said that last night. You said I would have been just as curious. I would have wanted to look at the skull. I would have wanted to see the teeth or. A hundred percent. Like we're cu- we are curious by nature. If you hunt, oh yeah, yeah. We we yeah. are programmed to inspect everything. Yeah, you know, to fact find and clue check and 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 look into everything. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it was the it was the shock of a lifetime that you you just you, there's no way to prepare for it. You, you know, you you maybe few people actually think daily. Like I wonder if today's my day. But most of us don't go walking around thinking that because no. you can't. No. no. You'd I mean, never do anything. You'd, yeah. you'd, no, you'd never leave bed. <laughs> you'd never leave the house. <laughs> yeah. So you, 
came to eventually. Yeah. You, you don't, don't know how long you were out for, do you? I don't know how long I was out. I mean, I've, I've, that was, so that was October 9th, 2011. And that was, you know, years ago now. And I've thought about it so many different times. And, um, you know, I, I bet I was out for 27, 28 minutes. And, um, I remember my eyes opening up and just like, if you're taking a nap on the forest floor, waiting for, you know, the light to get better or whatever it is, my eyes opened up and I'm looking at treetops and clouds scudding by and, um, you know, dotted blue sky. And, you know, I remember telling myself to get up. I remember telling myself to get to my feet and for the life of me, I do not remember what happened after that moment until, my next memory is um, was the sound first of my feet on gravel walking and then the visual of myself walking down a dirt road with the valley below me kind of heaving as if, you know, like, 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 kind of bouncing, you know, and, and, and I found myself walking out, walking to get help, basically. I, st- I still don't understand having watched the film, which should emphasize the fact there is a film that recounts this whole story um called charge i still don't understand how you walked out that day yeah i don't i mean i don't either i mean i i mean think about it i've i've through depression through joy through elation through conversations like this thousands of them you know with intimate friends and family i have thought about why is it that i didn't die that day um how I wish I wish I could have a distilled key to hand everybody <laughs> listening of hey if you find yourself like at death's teeth this is what you do and and yet I think it's actually I don't think I have a special something to hand to anyone other than you know like I believe that we are inherently bred and born to fight and we we maybe forget that that is a part of what it is to be human. I like I ask fathers or mothers. I I don't I don't have any kids, right? But I ask. I say, when your kid was born, did they come out, you know, like singing a lullaby and and super calm and tranquil, or what was it, what was your kid doing when they came out? And the answer is the same every time. Oh my God, they were screaming. They were fighting. Like that's what we're, that's what we know to do from the moment we're born is we know to fight. And then as we discover, you know, Gore-Tex and Thinsulate and like all these beautiful, like, you know, things that make life more comfortable, we forget how powerful we are. And, um, and so in that moment, all I can say is that I, I think, you know, how I was able to get out is I was so, I was so back to square one, right? Instincts. Yeah. That I just became that human again. That just didn't. Primal. Yeah, I left a cell phone and truck keys and all of my. This so this is interesting. I I left at the site everything I had on me that day. And and as you know, when you go hunting, your backpack is basically like a small village. It has a little bit of everything <laughs> yeah. in it, right? And I left it all there. And the only thing that I had with me walking out was bear spray in my right hand. And the area where I was elk hunting is one of the most grizzly dense regions of Southwest Montana and in the lower 48 for that matter. And so somewhere in that, in that fight flight mode, I consciously knew that the only thing I needed was to get the hell out of there and to take bear spray. Like, that's unbelievable. Crazy, right? Yeah, that's crazy. Cause you must've had to get it out. Well, I mean, it would have been on my hip, but it was, but I, when I came to walking on that you were, road, it was in your hand. It was in my hand, and and there I am walking with bear spray in my right hand, 
my left hand was, you know, burnt and, and charred and sort of restricted into like a macabre claw, super black. I remember you could see some of the white bone through the, through the exit wounds of the, the burn, you know, the electricity. And I had two cow calls, two elk calls, a, a calf call and like a, like a mom, like a mature cow call. And I remember wrapping them under my hand to make a sling and just kept walking. Yeah, made it to the valley floor, got help, made it to ICU. And at what, so you now you're you're in the hospital. At yeah. At what point do you realize how bad your accident was? Because I, at that point, it must have all just been a blur and... Yeah. Um, you know, I it, it took, I think it took days before I realized how how close I had come to death, you know, and, and of course those around me, it was immediately apparent, you know, the surgeon on call was like, you know, uh, his, this is a famous quote now that's been circulated out and it's his words were a bag of bones with a heartbeat. And that, when I was wheeled in, you know, I think he must've said that to either, you know, the team or whomever it was like, Oh my gosh, this guy's a bag of bones with a heartbeat. So barely alive. Yeah. How long was your recovery from that? Uh, well, my stay in ICU was 50 days, um, probably around um, 17 odd surgeries over 50 days. Um, and then in totality, I think my physical recovery was probably closer to a year and a half, maybe. Just for, for people who haven't seen the story, and I encourage people to go and you know watch the film, what had been affected from the the electricity passing through you yeah so the so the so when i when i reached down to take the claws off of that you know off of that bare corpse um the knife was in my left hand so the knife became the conduit that for the the, the live power to arc yeah from and so I should, I should actually step up backwards because I know there's people asking, well, what, wait, what, what, where did this power come from? Did it just eject out of the earth naturally? <laughs> um, and so what I can share is that it was a junction box for power going from you know the road from the utilities down the road up to a backcountry cabin, and um, in that the box had fallen off of a maintenance record, a maintenance log, and and you know decades prior to me coming across it. And the lid had been secure at one point in time, but the locks had corroded and become compromised. And the lid must have sloughed off and was laying nearby overgrown. So that was what exposed the can. So this can was an old junction, junction, you know, like box for yeah. a power line. And um, so I'll re- remind me, where, where was that? Uh, just to explain the extent of your injuries. Ah, uh, yeah. So, got it. So I reach into the can with my knife and the power arcs to the knife goes in my left hand and ultimately ended up blowing out through my elbow, both elbows, through my hand, my right hand, uh, and then also through my left thigh, my left torso. Um, so nine, and, and then through my sculpt twice, scalp twice. So nine different accent wounds, um, which over the course of my ICU stay, resulted in that you know I had my left hand and wrist amputated um, so I still have sort of like 10 inches of my left forearm and then I had three 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 four inch sections of ribs removed from my left torso and then major muscle groups of my obliques and 
I'm a, I'm a one nipple dude, so I'm missing my left nipple and my, <laughs> my obliques on this side and my whole trapezius is removed. Did they have to pull that round? Did they? Yeah, they, it's a muscle flap. I'm surprised you know that. That's rad. Yeah, so right now if I flex my trap, it basically flexes here on my wow. torso. But um, yeah, so immense muscle loss, some bone loss. And um, to, to this point, no memory or funky mental, you know, uh, or vision or hearing loss. But I Despite do. Despite it blowing out the top of your head. Yeah, through, through my skull. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, and I, I, you'd think I would lean on that, you know. <laughs> Fiance yeah. calls your name. Hey, Eduardo. And you can, <laughs> I forgot to turn my registration in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When I was watching uh, the film last night, um, and Tyler was sitting on, uh, on the sofa with me, I kept saying to him that I just I couldn't believe your attitude through that because mm. it's it, well, it was incredible that there was so much so much footage which is in the film, and you just had this incredible outlook the whole time, and I, I just kept sitting there shaking my head and was like, of everything that you're going through, I don't know how you're able to do that. And it was remarkable to me and yeah. inspiring. It does. It came through just, you're smiling. Hmm. Yeah. Qu- quite a lot. Telling, quite a lot. Telling, telling yeah. a lot of jokes yeah. as well. Like the, you're talking about the raw ICU footage. Yeah, all yeah. the raw yeah. ICU footage. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so to that, to that point, there's two things I would add or say to that is that one, ignorance is sometimes bliss. You know, like I, I don't, I did not know what kind of hell the next five years of my life would be rebuilding my business and just, and then of course the emotional and psychological struggles that I was going to have, which I'm thankfully, you know, I'm still working through, but that crux move had not happened yet. When I was in ICU, I was freshly, it was like, think of it this way. And it's kind of a screwed up way to think about it. But if you think about when you start to date a new person, it's, it's like new and it's fresh and it's fun. And so now I'm not going to say that ICU was new or fresh or fun, but because I didn't know anything about it yet, I had no idea what it would, how hard it would be to get back into recovery, right? Yeah. So there's a sort of little bit of ignorance that you see in the film, which is I just had no idea the battle that was about to happen. And, and then on top of that, I was grateful enough, I, you know, I was lucky enough and I'm grateful for it to have a terrific family that were all there supporting uh, my ex-girlfriend, Jenny Jane, had flown back from the UK. She's from England, had flown back from the UK to be my full-time caregiver. Incredible. I was in the, one of the best hospitals in the United States for burn, the Salt Lake City, University of Utah, Burn Trauma Center. So there was much to be grateful for. All of that layers on top of the fact that I'm a glass half full, kind of optimistic dude anyway. Um, and then, you know, of course, I was on a lot of drugs. <laughs> that was on a lot of painkillers, man. You know. And through through this incredible injury and recovery, you were dealt another blow of bad news. Yeah. I'm talking about this. I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just pointed to my crotch. I'm talking about this. Um, yeah. So, in, so there we were in ICU, and um, I think we were – Gosh, I, halfway through my 50-day stay, and um, the, you know, Jenny and I were in the room. Maybe my brother was there also, but the one of the, the residents wheels in a monitor and, you know, was just like, um, you know, basically, we, we got some bad news for you, buddy. 
um, shows me a scan of my torso. And um, let me see if I remember this right. Shows me a scan. Oh, no, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. Now that, now I'm th trying to think about this now. Okay, so th this, this is how it happens. This is how it happens. That I come out of a surgery, and one of my exit wounds was through my sac, was through my scrotum. And my left testy was not going to survive being cleaned and put back together, and they make the executive decision. And actually, Jenny Jane, my ex-girlfriend, got to like sign this away. Um, because before they remove body parts from you, someone, the legal power of attorney has to, has to sign it off. And if Jenny is listening, I just need to add that we had had a complicated relationship where I was unfaithful. So it's sort of like her ultimate, like, you know, little payback. That she <laughs> like got to, like, yeah, she got to be like, oh, I'll sign on that. You know, like that thing was always a bad apple. And um, literally. And, and so... And so they removed my left testicle in surgery and are able to put my purse back together with the right one, thank goodness. And um, and I believe they're – so I, you, what happens is you come out of a surgery and, and, and there's this period where you come out of your anesthesia fog and, um, and everybody else knows what's up because they've been watching you, but yeah. you've been asleep. And so when you come out, you have all these questions every time. Well, how did it go? Did it go okay? any, any, any good, any bad, yeah. like, you know, and, and I, you know, they told me, well, we couldn't save, you know, old lefty. And I was like, oh man, that was the big one, you know? Like, <laughs> and so, and so there I am dealing with the news that they just removed my left testicle. And, um, and I do though, I, I think I made a, 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 made a, made a comment to make light of it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. And I said something like, well, I never liked that one anyway, you know, like, and, but then I added to it, maybe added a little color to that. Uh, just, yeah, that thing gave me issues one time. Like, that was the one that always hurt. And my brother, I believe, goes just kind of, the doctor leaves, you know. They've told me that we couldn't save the testicle. I make my comment offhanded. And it was my brother that takes note of it and walks out into the hallway and chases the doctor down. And is just like, hey, doc, just just a thought. After you left my brother made a comment that that one had always given him a problem. I don't know what you do with that, but it just like, it, it stuck on me. So then what happens is when they remove body parts, any pieces of tissue from you, it gets sent to a lab. And so because my brother noted my offhanded comment about how that one had always been an issue and then had brought it to the doctor's attention, the doctor called the lab and said, Hey, we want, let's, let's run a test on, you know, old lefty. And, uh, and so then, you know, the next day the the resident and intern or whomever, you know, they come into my room with a scan and they were reviewing some of the CAT scans from my first few days in, you know, and basically they had sent the testicle to the lab and it came back positive for testicular cancer. And so, um, you know, you know, you got this guy who just recently became an amputee going through sort of this tragic life event. And then, you, you know, also realizing that you have testicular cancer. You know, there's no way to deal with that other than to just absorb. And you had to get it treated pretty quick. Uh, yeah. And so it's insane, right? That that was even discovered. Yeah. yeah through that, that, that series of events. And it took me a minute to remember that. I haven't told the story in a long yeah. time. But that's insane, right? Yeah. I did wonder wh when I was watching watching that that 
whether it, with different circumstances, whether you would have found it. Well, who knows, right? It, it may be not until it was too late, well, right? This, yeah, this is what I was thinking. Yeah, so I don't, you, you know. You never know you these things, know. but it, it kind of ran through my mind when I was like, you deal this guy this hand after everything that's happened? Yeah, and and so to anyone listening, uh, man or woman, you know, the, the, the encouragement I would just give, because there should be some education here, is that, if anyone is complaining about, you know, um, pain in their testes, tell them to go get checked out immediately. I, I recall my offhand comment, oh, that's the one that gave me issues. I'd recall in 2007, I was in Saint-Tropez, and I remember working and, and having a pain down there and telling the captain. And I, I don't complain about too much. I'm not like a super tough but, guy. But it must have been giving you an issue. It was giving you an issue. To it make, was totally to giving that. me was an a, issue. A lot of pain? I Like... Again, I don't know how censored we are here. <laughs> no, but no, you're, you, not you, you're not censored. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, it a, it's a serious topic. Yeah. So, so, so the way I would say it is, if you've had a wild weekend, you know everything's a little like sore and or tender, and yet I would have that feeling without having a wild weekend. Okay. You know, okay. so I would feel like in you know engorged or inflamed, and um, and I mentioned it to the captain, and the captain says, oh, well, we one of our guest on board is a doctor. Why don't you have him check you out? I'm like, all right. And I'll never forget, I was in the galley, like scrambling eggs over here doing something, and, and Dr. K comes in. He's like, what's up, Eduardo? You know, captain says, you're hurting, man. I was like, yeah, I am. And I tell him my symptoms. And he's like, oh, well, doctors, you know. They're like, well, drop your drawers, bro. Yeah. So I do. Yeah. I've got my apron on. So I'm like lifting my apron up like this. I drop my Scrambling eggs and all that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and, and he does. He gives me a quick eval, evaluation, and... Um, you know, he watches, he's like, all right, well, it seems like I get it. It feels a little tender, but, um, and he asked me, he's like, well, are you, how hard are you working? I go, are you standing all day? I'm like, yeah, 20 hours a day. Well, when do you get a day off? Well, I haven't had a day off in a month or two. He's like, well, two things. Take an ibuprofen. Take, get off your feet a little bit. Tell the captain to give you some time off and you'll be fine. It's what every young 20 year old wants to hear, you know, is I don't have to go to the doctor. I'll be fine. Yeah. And so, anyway, you know, go get yourselves checked out, guys. If any, if you're getting any red flags, so then, you know, that was my that was my feedback to that. I never liked that one anyway. That was the one that always gave me issues, you know. So there I was in ICU. And um, and what happened is we were basically the doctors wheeled in the scan, and they're showing me a scan that they took on my first few days in ICU. And they're pointing out a mass the size of maybe, you know, a um, like a small orange that's in my lower left abdomen right next to my spine. And they basically are saying, we discovered testicular cancer in the testy that was removed. We've reviewed your scans. And whereas when we first saw these scans, when we took them a week ago, we just thought this was trauma-based mass. It could be fluid. It could be the weak scar tissue, but something related to the electrical injury. You had so much going on in your body. I was a mess. Yeah, totally. It was a mess. It was like the least of their worries when they saw it a week ago. But now that this guy just tested positive for a seminoma cancer, it's serious. What is this? This could be a second-stage tumor coming up. It's like perfectly in line from testy to lower abdomen spine, and um, it was like okay, all hands on deck. And so to, you know, they basically the prescription was uh, three months of rigid chemotherapy treatment. Um, so we, re- we basically put all, all of my planned surgeries on hold. Planned surgeries got put on hold and I had the choice. 
uh, chemotherapy in Salt Lake City or Montana, and I came home and did my did my three months here. Yeah, and it it worked. Well, okay, so here's there's more to this. Is that, I hope everyone's enjoying the layers of this because I don't ever really get an opportunity <laughs> sure. to go yeah, this no, far we in depth. Are, this this is the point into my story. Yeah. So I hope everyone goes and watches the film Charged. You can yeah. get it on Amazon or iTunes or wherever. I you guarantee want. people will. Okay, good. <laughs> so this. do it, and then and then listening to this will add some major color because um, so so before even going back to Montana to do my chemo treatments, the mass that we, that they revisited and you know hypothesized that it was a second stage tumor they immediate the immediate course of action was still in, was when i was in icu and they're like all right well we need to biopsy this well if anyone knows what a biopsy is imagine having an apple with a needle and you poke the apple with the needle and that's your biopsy and and then you check the material that you pull out the, with the hollow core needle well how many times do you need to stick that apple to positively biopsy every little bit of it, right? And so what they do is they'll they try to basically biopsy an average area yeah. of the apple, of the mass of the tumor. And all of my tumor markers came back. All of all of those biopsies came back negative. All of my blood work, all my markers came back negative. So, okay, so your testicle was for sure positive. What we think is a second stage tumor is coming back negative, negative, negative after five biopsies. All your blood work is good. However, we recommend, we highly recommend that you go through a rigorous course of chemotherapy to be sure, right? Well, I'm not going to argue with that. So when you're asked the question, well, are you good today? The crazy thing was is that it was not, a, it, supposedly I had no live active cancer cells in my body because it was removed it was the left testy right that that mass to this day has never really been positively diagnosed as to what it is so it's still there i monitor it every 12 months i go back in for a checkup that we check my blood work the whole thing and and we check that mass and just and measure its size and it's it's like Every year, it may grow a little or shrink a little, and um, as of yet, there are repercussions associated with removing it because it's so close to um, my spine, and I have, as of yet, we just monitor it, and if I have to, we'll take it out, Um, but for now, I I get a checkup every 12 months, and knock on wood that, you know, the results come back um, clean. Yeah. So the the course was, uh, it was your safety net. The course of chemo. The course of chemo was a safety net to just make sure that we killed anything that was in there. Yeah. And at that point, you go back to trying to rebuild your body and the rest of your surgeries. Yeah, rebuild the body and and, and the business and life, basically. Yeah. Because, of course, your business is running throughout this. Yes. So the, my business partners kept the business. I mean, that's the, that's, that's, that's team right there, you know, and they kept the doors open and kept orders filled. And, um, I reflect on it now in that, you know, our business is still open and it has metamorphosized into something completely different. You know, today we're a national food brand that's, um, largely focused on, um, shelf stable products. Whereas back then we were this small local focused local team on fresh things. And I, I just reflect, you know, before you guys came over, I was on my computer all day working on Montana max on the business. And, um, in just telling this story, I get to reflect just what it 
took to keep that business afloat and how many people, you know, need to hear that thanks and are, are due those, do those marks for keeping the doors open. Yeah. For sure. It's not, it's not easy starting a business, period. So yeah. <laughs> let alone. <laughs> yeah. Add that to it. No, yeah. literally I was talking to a potential investor yesterday and on the one hand I'm trying to, in, I'm trying to share all of the growth and the success we're experiencing and of course you're pitching someone for investment you know you're trying to give them the good some of the bad but mostly all the good yeah and um and yet in this call yesterday i also i had to just say like i had to say you know i don't know where we'd be right now had i not got zapped with the business anyway but it sure did throw a monkey wrench in it for many years and we're still dealing with that now you know, years later. How did you um, cope and adapt to the the very um, obvious fallout from your accident, which is now that you have one of your original hands? Mm. Because, and I'm sure that there is, there's probably so, someone listening to this podcast who is an amputee of some description, I would guess, um, given the number of people who listen to it. And I think it's important for people to understand that kind of process because we are so you know incredibly fortunate enough to have what we have yeah. you know our hands our eyes our ears and then you get one of them taken away from you and for some people it well probably for everyone it's a very hard thing to deal with but you clearly pushed on and just made it happen yeah um that's a good question that's a you could do a podcast just on that question for hours and in short not that it doesn't deserve hours um, I think I, I was inspired by others around me in ICU right out of the get-go that were missing all of their limbs following, you know, a good friend of mine, Will Lautzenheiser. Um, he had toxic shock and, and basically became a quad quadriplegic overnight or over the course of many months, really, but overnight, um, you know, theoretically speaking. And I'll never forget being in physical therapy or headed to the physical therapy room while he was coming back from physical therapy. And he shook his stump, you know, like his remaining limb at me. And he shook it in, in like, congratulatory stoke, like, we can do this, man. Like, we got this. Because I was heading into PT and he was coming out. And I remember, I don't know if I was walking in. And yet, the I must have been walking because this guy's on a you know, on a, a rolling bed with no legs and no arms. And he's like, you got this, man. And I will never forget, like, Will, if, if he's got this, I've got this because I'm only missing 10 inches of my arm. And so the point being is that we each walk our own paths. We each walk our own journeys and challenge is challenge is challenge. It's, it's just the circumstance that separates what you guys individually experience as challenge. It's only the circumstance, but going through hard times is is hard on everybody no matter what your challenge is you know and so i think that helped me step out of the weeds a little bit and and recognize that i just had to own and live with this and then to be fair we're talking nine years now after the fact or eight years now after the fact so i've had a lot of time to process and deal with it i i mean i i was um I made you guys that bite on your way in here this morning or this afternoon and there was that deer shoulder and when I was pouring hot water into my sous vide circulator to cook that shoulder yesterday I dropped it so I, I dropped a pot of water and it slipped out of my hook and slammed on the ground and splashed hot water all over me and I didn't burn myself thank goodness but 
moments like that happen all the time that remind me that I don't have this awesome capable thing, which is the dexterous hand that we're born with, which is brilliant. This thing is just like the best in your body is the best invention in the world. And, um, and so I am, yeah, I'm reminded often that it's super challenging, but then I also look at others out there and recognize that it's challenging for everybody, whether you got a hand or not. Life is hard, period. I was intrigued by, I mean, you, you've told the story of, you know, how important being in the outdoors and the fishing and hunting and that mm. was to you. And I was intrigued by you learning to shoot again and the process that you went through to basically get something manufactured to allow you to, with your new hand, mm. to shoot again. Because obviously that was something that must have been at a point on your mind, I have to be able to do this again because it's part of who I am. Shooting my bow, yeah. talking about. Shooting your bow. Yeah. Um and it's the film shows some of that process and, and it's everything. I mean, you're how do I do everything again? You know, how, how do I do everything again? And I've had this prosthetic break on me, the one I wear every day. And and the second you're without it, you know, you, you it's strange, right? So you lose your hand and you immediately need to start. You, you just do. You adapt. The body adapts. The brain adapts. And you start thinking about, well, how do I do this again? Or how do I do this? Period from scratch and so now having figured some things out if I take off my prosthetic to swim to go float the river to take a shower to go to bed and I wake up I'm like or I in that moment of not having it on I want to go do something and or it breaks so I don't have it anyway it's like going back to that moment again of oh no how do I do this without my prosthetic on and the beautiful truth is that we figure it out you figure it out you know I got friends out there with no legs that rock around on skateboards and half an arm and they figure it out, you know, and or you ask for help yeah. and or you ask for help. And, and there's probably, there is something so dang magical about asking another, anybody for help because it does two things. You, you have the opportunity to organically, to naturally and authentically receive and you are presenting the opportunity for another human being to give both being equally powerful I mean, that is a magical moment when you have the symbi- you know, symbiotic moment of giving and receiving. It's radical. But I, I, th- I think in, in life, I don't think people ask for help probably enough when they're struggling with whatever, many, it, may whatever it may be. No, totally not. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. And it's, it's one of the greatest, I mean, I, there's got to be a dopamine release in there somewhere when you ask for help and get help or when you're given something, right? Giving and receiving. Uh, it just makes us feel good. I watched your series with Yeti, which I thought was absolutely awesome. So eventually, having had your filming interrupted by your accident, mm. it was different, but you kind of came back to it. How did that conversation start for for that series to go online? So the series... Um, the Hungry Life. Yeah, the series talking about is Hungry Life. And... Um, and go watch it it's on youtube right now you can go to yeti uh, and it's under the yeti presents series of all the amazing films and stories they tell with the camera um they know how to tell a good story they do (laughs) they know how to tell a good story so the hungry life is the show concept that jenny jane and i wanted to sell the food network and never had the opportunity that pretty much is it a hundred percent that is what we were talking about an hour ago wow yeah okay yeah amazing yeah and it's two things a don't give up on what you're dreaming about. If you believe in something and you know it's good, 
um, meaning it, it, it fulfills you and gives to, it gives and receives if it does that for you, if it's a passionate thing that does that for you, don't give up on it. It's totally worth doing. And, um, and then secondly, the way it actually came about was that Yeti was coming on board to help us basically produce and create and um, uh, charged. They, 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 were, they, they came in as a major backer to help us financially kickstart charged. And we were signing documents in Austin, and I decided to stay for an extra day um, or an evening and ended up going out to dinner with um, Scott Ballou, who's the um, head of creative um, development or media at Yeti, basically, right? Yeah. And um, Scott and I are just having dinner, you know, pounding Topo Chico's and eating good food, and, um, and we're just chatting. You guys had Topo Chico for the first time at my house, which uh, is a Mexican mineral water. The ones, the carbonated yeah. ones, not the ones in the cans, the ones in the bottles. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's we're, good stuff. It is good stuff. And and if you're in da- anywhere in if you're anywhere in Texas, but yeah. mostly like if you're in Dallas, if you're in Austin, Absolutely. If you're in, you know it's 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 almost holy cooler water. than a beer, really. Yeah. And so it's holy water. <laughs> so <laughs> for we're me, sit- it is. So we're sitting there slamming good food and 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 drinking holy water, and um. And Scott and I are just kind of riffing as almost like quick friends, you know, and, um, and really in passing, I just, I think I just said, uh, something along the lines of, um, like, what is Yeti doing for food content right now? Because you guys make killer coolers. And this was, this was in 2016, really when they had just started, like they had couple pieces of stainless out but that was it it was you know coolers tundras and not even soft coolers it was tundras and a couple pieces of stainless and i said man you know this whole business is around basically keeping things cold that eventually go in your body most likely to drink or eat and yet there's no recipe content on your website like there's no seems like like a really obvious thing to say and and so we talk about it for a second and i just kind of like throw scott I show him a little 60-second piece that I had produced with Jenny and a friend, uh, Barrett Bowman, had filmed. And it was like basically another one of these pilots that I did to as a demo to show brands what I wanted to do was basically, I'm a chef. I use these brands. If you're interested in telling a food story, this is what it could look like. And anyway, the one thing led to another. And I tell him about the, the show, Active Ingredient, that we wanted to sell to Food Network. And he greenlit a pilot and so we went and built a deck out with a team out of LA called Ofer Show good friends and uh, one thing leads to another and they greenlit the series and we filmed it for a year and finally came out last August on their platform and on YouTube so that was that show that's how it came about it's incredible it's I mean every part of it like every Yeti film it's so well filmed and your food is it's delicious. <laughs> like like just visually it looks amazing. So Thank you. Win win. <laughs> yeah, total win win. And I and I just want to make sure there's credit given and that Yeti really came on board to green light and make it happen. You know, they, they were the production crew that made that happen, but we also worked with very talented um, production teams that creatively themselves as editors and videographers were so integral. Um you know, and, and all of the hosts, you know, all of sort of the, um, you know, the, the people of, you were with, the, the- yeah, the, the, the oncoming co-talent to, you know, basically we're not, it's a non-scripted 
peace. It's it's basically an opportunity for you know people to go on an adventure and a creative team to tell the story around that adventure with food being the ultimate through line. You know, and um, I'm I'm frothing to keep doing more of those. Well, I was going to say, based on yeah. the last time we talked, you are hoping to develop this into a longer form, either ongoing series or a feature film or something like that, correct? You're, you're yeah. wanting to do this more. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think it's it's one of those things that we're, as always, you know, you, you keep keep that idea right here close and, and sharpen that tool every day. So keep doing it in your daily life because that's the thing. Hungry life is, metaphorically speaking, it's you living your best life. For me, living my best life, it is being in touch with the natural world, knowing where my food comes from, whether it's foraging, fishing, hunting, or borrowing from friends, but having a completely richer experience when eating a meal and versus just the acquisition of it through a purchase or go shopping and buying. I do that too, guys, you know, yeah. like, but I, I'd love nothing more than telling a rich story around a meal. And it starts with the scheming, the planning, like, okay, like right now, you know, right now I have not gone to buy pork fat or pork meat to make sausages. And I want to make some game sausages and rather than go buy, I might go buy the meat, but I'm scheming of how to go like down to Texas and go on a hog hunt. Sure. So then when I finally make these brats, there's like, okay, well, can, the elk came from here. I can make that happen. So let's go hog <laughs> hunting, go. right? Yeah. See? And yeah. th this is so much more interesting. It's just being <laughs> like thinking about a, an adventure with we Tyler. Should, we should go down to, uh, to Jesse Griffith's ranch. Jesse, you're listening. We're coming down, yeah. bud. Yeah, yeah. Or come to Scotland, but I don't think you can transport the, the no, meat. We've got boar. Boar. <laughs> Well, we learned earlier, you just uh, put it in some foil and stuff it down the front of your pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a story for another time. That's, a, that's called smuggling. Yeah. <laughs> Not drugs, if people are listening. <laughs> We're talking about pork fat, okay. Tyler, how important do you think content like that, like the Hungry Life series, is is to to tell the, the narrative which is the discussion that you and I and Daryl have been having all week and with many of the guests sure. we, we've been having on the podcast. Well, I think, you know, when in, our daughter and I talked about it last time, it's, you know, for someone like him, he, he came to that naturally, right? Being in the outdoors, being in these environments with, in Montana with animals surrounding him and then learn how to cook it himself. And that became a means to an end. And I remember you telling me a story about the first time you figured out you could sell trout. Mm -hmm. You were like, oh. You can sell trout here. Uh, back, in the, back in the day, back in the day. Like, it yeah. might be frowned upon <laughs> backdoor kind of <laughs> under the radar um, and he saying, was 12 again so. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well but just that there was there was monetary value to yeah, yeah, to, yeah, and yeah. to that kind of thing yeah. but for us especially with some of the modern huntsman stuff right people who might normally be opposed to hunting or conversations around hunting or have some preconceived notion of what that is things like what Eduardo produces and, and the tone he uses and the language he uses and the passion he uses to talk about why he's taking, you know, this animal and this life or these mushrooms or these reeds and creating this meal from what's available from the earth. That's a huge bridge between those two worlds. And so I think that there's not enough of it. I mean, it's great that you know, Eduardo's now working with Meat Eater, right? And that, and they're doing a great job talking more about this and, and um, you know, Hank Shaw and that kind of stuff too. But I think that that 
is if it's not enough, it's not enough of the the percentage that should be a bridge between a hunting and a non-hunting world, and there should be more of it. And so, if anyone's listening and they want to or want to be film producer of some kind, Eduardo needs to be doing more of this. And so, I'm certainly gonna do everything I can to to make sure that 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 stuff's happening <laughs> yeah, and, and to give him a platform in, in our magazine or on your podcast or, or whatever because. Um, I think it's it's just important to tell the story, but also to draw that uh, connection between a natural connection to the natural world, which um, it, like we were talking about the other day, if somebody doesn't care about something, if they don't understand mm, the importance, interest. they're yeah. not going to protect it. So even if they're not going to agree to go kill a deer, right, with mm. a twenty-two, they may say, okay, you know what, I appreciate the fact that you have the ability to go do that, but then you also have the respect to finish that story, right, and to take it from field to table right if mm-hmm. we're going to use the term yeah um but then i think that people are really interested in that i mean we've had a lot of interest through modern huntsmen and people who want to eat wild meat they don't know where to get it mm. and maybe they don't want to do it themselves but if there was an opportunity for them to come you know to one of your dinners or or, or something like that you know i'm sure people would sign up for it in a heartbeat i'd love to bring you to scotland you could do so many cool things because in terms of foraging and yeah accent, oh, foraging accent, wild food, wild food we have so much of Red it. Red grouse, roe deer, wild yeah. boar. You know, you yeah, could just walk along the coastline and you could eat cocktail. so much stuff on our coastline. And then literally from the coastline, some of it on Sky, you walk. And there isn't grouse there, but there are situations where you can literally walk from the beach and then go hunting. Yeah. yeah. On the west coast of Scotland. So to that point, yeah, I want to come to Scotland. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's just make it We're happen. Make let's it just happen. make it happen. I'm in. And, and I think, you know, to Tyler's point and, and kind of collectively um, – you know whether it's whether it's groups like um, like Steve Vanella and the Meat Eater or Hank Shaw or Remy or Danielle Pruitt or myself or you know Tyler you cook wild game and, and you don't have to be you don't need to be a brand okay you know um, so collectively the onus is on us as sportsmen and and humans period is is that the second we forget about like to assign a value to something then we squander. And so all it is really is is it's just sort of recognizing that these things have value. And it's just such a loss to go out on a hunt just to kill. You're missing so much. You know, you're missing... There has to be more to you're missing, you're missing just untold amounts of added opportunity and value added if you're not paying attention to the hedgerow on your way to where the animal's standing keep your eyes open pluck some things on your way it's just everyone wants more bang for their buck and so that's all this is really is 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 even the foraging and understanding the terroir of where you are adds so much more value to that radical experience it's, it, and then compounded on that is paying attention to the the method of take whether it's longbow whether it's compound archery whether it's flintlock or you can get into a diverse way of of harvesting now which is also super neat um and then the conversation around food is is just the ultimate thing that we forgot about which is it's it's you know you can do anything with food. You can cook it in a myriad of ways, especially with Amazon Prime now. You can just like get yourself paste and spreads and sauces from all over the world, you know? Yeah. And um and so there's just you know, the encouragement from my end is is if you're going to put that much effort into acquiring what's in your pantry, don't stop when you light the burner and start cooking. That should be the ultimate, ultimate moment of like 
of giving gratitude is paying the respect and, and having fun and that sort of crescendo of experience. And here it is. Now we're going to finally eat it. Let's make this the most exciting part of the whole adventure. It's the culmination of everything. Yeah. When are your sources not going to reach the UK so we, yeah. we can get them there? Well, so I was going to say it's kind of twofold for you. And, and to me, this is mm. what makes your work so amazing is that, yeah, you have that side of your philosophy, right? But mm. then when we talked last time about your philosophy with Montana Mex, right, that you're taking what you've learned as a chef, these highbrow, fancy cooking techniques, right. and you've brought them down to the salt of the earth spices and sauces mm -hmm. for someone who maybe they're not cooking wild game maybe yeah. they just want to cook right and and so i want you to tell them a little bit more about what you told me where you were saying that you really if you can inspire one person to mm -hmm. all of a sudden they feel good about the fact that they just cooked salmon for the first time or that this or that and that helps them with their confidence and their yeah joe de vrive for, i believe mm -hmm. is what you told me last time yeah, yeah the joy of life yeah um so montana max has morphed today uh, Montana Max is that original farmer's market brand we're working on, and um, it has morphed into being a national brand that's sold in a thousand plus stores in the U.S. It's online. Um, so go to MontanaMex.com. I don't care where you are in the world. We may not ship to the U.K., but check out the brand. And, yeah. and you know, um, I do believe we have folks shipping it overseas, so that is happening. But Montana Max as a company, we exist to become your toolkit. So, you know, sort of, we just actually, I'm giving you a sneak peek because I don't know when this is airing, but we just put we, in... We can we can hold it off for a bit. No, you don't have to. <laughs> Basically, we're brainstorming um, slogans and taglines and for the outdoor hunting community as it relates to Montana Max. Because right now, largely, we are a grocery brand for the general consumer market. Yeah. And yet I am of, and other people in our in our company and other and our founders we we are hunters and fishermen and so we do want to connect more with the outdoor community so we were making an ad for the outdoor community and the slogan was um you hunt it we'll help you cook it oh, you know and so basically we're a toolkit in that we have an oil we have a not beautiful extra virgin avocado oil we have three sauces we have three seasonings so you pick the medium, whether it's wild ramps, whether it's hedgehog mushrooms, whether it's grouse, whether it's roe deer, whether it's elk. You can pick the, the food, bring it to the table. We'll give you a spice package and a sauce package in with which to make it come alive and get creative with. So we'll be your painting tools. You, know? you, you, you pick the canvas, we'll give you the paint, and then you draw what you want with it. And we'll give you inspirations along the way. But you should mess it up. You should burn it a couple times. You should scrap the piece and throw it away once or twice. And that's part of the process of becoming your own best painter or cook or artist. You know, it's not to be feared. So we're there to help you get there. You know, we're here, there to help make it a win for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, you evidently fish a lot. So what's your favorite fish to go after? Uh, it, wait, where? Here. Oh, um, or hmm. or anywhere actually. Yeah, here here it's going to be the Rocky Mountain whitefish. Okay. Yeah, um, delectable eating, great frying, great steaming, um, easy to catch, um, and native. There's something about that. And then, um, oof, if I went to saltwater, <sighs> something fatty. Yeah, something fatty. I think salmon, salmon, or the mackerel family. You know, I like strong flavors. We catch a lot of mackerel. We do off our coast. Yeah, uh, a I, lot of mackerel. I dream about it, man. I dream about in it. In fact, that is in our freezers. The only fish that's probably in it is mackerel. Probably at the moment. Yeah, yeah. probably at the moment. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm coming to visit you guys. <laughs>
They've got a great spot. No, I can't wait. Yeah, I've never been. Um, what is what are you going to be doing with the guys at Meat Eater? How's that sort of evolving? We were with uh, Ben O'Brien this morning, actually. We did a podcast with him at the start of the week, and we were on his show this morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm pretty sure we were talking about you and the sort of the, the Meat Eater crew that's building and growing, Expanding and all the people very that fast. are coming under that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what's what's your involvement going to be with the team? Yeah, so, well, you know, uh, whether this stip makes the cut or not, we actually ended our 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 relationship oh, okay. with them. Oh, I did not know. Um, yeah. But we are still collectively, I yeah. think, a part of the same movement, which is to say, like, hey, all ships rise on a rising tide. So um, I think we're all coming at, at the same industry, the saying is let's the elevate end. the message yeah. here and and continue to up the ante. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to throw the ball your way, you throw it back my way. Let's keep going with this. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, in the hunting community, it's such a great group of people. Oh, yeah. And the energy is awesome. And I think that now, I've seen it in, in recent years where the like-mindedness for where we need to be headed. Oh, uh, yeah. A lot of the the conversations that uh, I've had with Tyler when we as we were getting to know one another and is very much encapsulated in, mo- in Modern Huntsman, more and more people are thinking that way and want to do their part sort of to carry the torch forward. And I think that's awesome. Oh, man. It, not only is it awesome, but it's... um. It's about time. It is. <laughs> you know, it's about time. Yeah. It, it, food, think about it this way. Okay, so it's, it's um, food is elemental. We have to do it. I mean, I'm, we're going to go get dinner here shortly, right? Yeah. yeah you right. know, it's something that must happen, <laughs> yeah. you know, on, with, to sustain life on earth. And why not celebrate it? You know, why not celebrate every part of it? And so um, I just think we're in a bit of a renaissance right now. And, um, and just to everyone out there who is either mildly curious or diehard fanatic, just go big, go for it, talk about it, you know, raise the, raise the roof, create a pop-up of your own in your own pantry and your own larder and your share. own back pub, um, share, share the wealth and, um, and keep the conversations going out there because this is only, it's just kind of, like I said earlier in the beginning, when you're talking about flavors and you're talking about the best dish you could ever have, it's about layering. It's about depth. It's about building depth, you know? And so that's all we're doing here. And I'm super psyched to have had this opportunity to, you know, talk about how, how I continue to add layers to food experiences if, in if, the wild. If you could have one food for the rest of your life, <laughs> this is a freaking, cause I, I, I don't think I could even answer, but yeah. what, what would You've it be? You've been thinking of yeah. this for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> What would it be? Uh, not a dish, but one food. Yeah. Or a dish. That's mm. fine. That might be easier to answer. Anything cooked over a fire. Literally, yeah. just anything. As that long is, as a, that long is as a flame grilled. Great answer. I feel like I just dodged is, a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is something magical about cooking over a fire, and it almost doesn't even matter what it is. When, when me and Byron go hunting, yeah. Uh, typically, so sometimes we'll like hang the animal up, and the first thing we'll eat over the fire is the heart and the, the liver, straight, yeah. straight over the fire. Awesome, but awesome, we need man. we need better spices. So I know where. We're yeah, going yeah, yeah. We, we can make sure you go home with some. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm on it. We your your, your branding, by the way, is really cool. Oh, on, on your spices, yeah, I, I've that. actually tried all of your spices this this week. Okay, and I've tried two of your sauces. I think. Okay, yeah, the habanero and the ketchup. Yes, yeah, so I have. So I've tried. Two I drank the barbecue. I just chugged. <laughs> <laughs> That's coming from a Texan. Yeah, yeah it's good. That's stuff. badass. <laughs> I'm a Texican. Oh, nice. Yeah, at heart. Eduardo, it's been 
fantastic to have you on the podcast. Uh, we, we've been wanting to have you on the podcast since we first became aware of, of your story, uh, which was, you know, a couple of years ago. Couple, yeah, a few years ago. Uh, but my, my I, wife's a big fan, by the way. Oh, man. All of your food and everything, like, yeah, big fan. Tell so she, I, I messaged her saying that we're coming over here today. A little and she, jealous. And she was like, I cannot believe <laughs> you're going over there. And, and I have sampled some of your food. Yeah, uh, what was it? Right. I, I, I can't actually tamales. remember what it was. Tamales. tamales. Well, we, yeah. yeah, no, we, we had some tamales earlier, and then I fried up a little. Um, what was it? It was a little white tail deer shoulder with corn cactus paddle, and uh, I put my Montana Max jalapeno seasoning on it just for a kick. Yeah, yeah, that's where well, it's at. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, totally been my pleasure. It's been great to have you on. It's uh, an incredible story, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing in the future. Yeah, thanks. I'm coming to Scotland. I've done. And Tyler, thank you for bringing these guys over. You're welcome. Anytime. I made the mistake of uh, stroking the dog right before we were recording the outro, and now he's tapping his tail. But I hope that you enjoyed that. Well, obviously, when I edited it, I was kind of... It was an awesome show to edit again. Yeah. It was brilliant. You know, I actually... You know the bit in the show where Eduardo's... um, stands up and he's explaining got how I've got a picture got of that on picture. my phone. I don't know how we're going to get that. Maybe we can upload it to the show because there's like some extra content we can put on. So I've never done it before. So maybe yeah. we can insert that in the show. Well, if we can, we will. Yeah. I've got it. It's not a very good picture because we, we were sitting in a fairly dark room and I was just, that was why I said in there, just hold on a second so I can take a picture. It was just on my iPhone. But I have a picture of him in the pose. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. <laughs> If you would like some more information about us and what's going on, then head over to our website, which is all the W's, the pacebrothers.com. And if you want like to follow us on Instagram, which many of you do, it is pace underscore brothers. I will do my best to keep everyone updated while I'm out in Africa on Instagram stories, but I'm fairly shit at them compared to Daryl. He normally does all the stories when we're away, but I will do my best to try and keep everybody updated. Yeah, we have, um, we've, Instagram is where it's at. In fact, I saw someone putting up a post the other day uh, and basically talking about Facebook and Instagram and you should see the amount of people that are uh, were commenting underneath just saying they're just using Instagram now. I've you've not, done something bold, I've something dele- I did I, months ago. I deleted Facebook off my phone. I'm still using it because I've got to use it for work. Uh, so I use it oh yeah, on a computer, but I've deleted it off my, off my are phone. Are you a weekend now? From the detox, pretty much. Even. Yeah. yeah. How, how's it? How's it been for you? <laughs> Do you know what I find? Um, is that I wake up in the morning after I don't know what is it, twelve hours of not having Facebook or whatever it is, and I log on, and to my absolute astonishment, fuck all has changed. <laughs> nothing. There is literally nothing that has changed. Yeah. Other than you've maybe gained 35 to 40 minutes of your evening by not looking on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I still look on Instagram, don't get me wrong. I, I, I actually enjoy looking at people's photography on Instagram. So, I mean, you, you, you've got to have some pleasure, I guess. Out of, out of, you can't abandon all technology and say it's horrible, but Instagram is good. But yeah, no, nothing, nothing, nothing has changed. And that was the thing that shocked me is I think most people have been guilty of using that that piece of social networking far too much facebook but i had the same thing because now it's like over a weekend uh, i'll log out of our computers if we're in the office on a friday and i don't see it again until a monday when we're putting up posts mm. for clients or whatever 
and there'll be a bunch of notifications and I'll click it and 50, just 50 50 notifications and, and nothing's what, relevant nothing nothing like I've thought. not once thought oh, man I missed that never no I've got a news app yeah I've, I don't need to find that because if you actually analyze social media what it is is about 40% of all posts are someone sharing the news yeah of normally a tragedy so you've got that. Then the rest of it is you've got like 30% depression, people that are depressed or something bad is happening, which is fair enough. It, you know, bad things do happen. And then the rest is just made up of like just crap, just absolute just junk. Cr- absolute junk. And then you have this tiny percentage, which is is actually like your your genuine friends that you're interested in that you don't see because it filters them out. I was going to say that... The- I remember in the early days, what was cool is you could keep up with other people's li- yeah. lives if if you had friends in other parts of the world. But now I don't see any of that anyway. And it, and it does it doesn't actually matter as much anymore. I don't think because in the early days, everyone uses WhatsApp and everything now. So mm-hmm. if if I'm trying to keep contact with someone, I send them a message. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting one, but it's also my phone doesn't have much storage, so it's actually freed up 500 megabytes in my phone. So. <laughs> That's also There's another bonus. So also an extra bonus, but yeah, you should try it. Just use it on a computer, and then you'll see how see how you feel. Yeah. I want to know. <laughs> Just as a, a a last thing, because it's sitting on the desk here, and I've been impressed with how awesome these are, and I'm about to take them to Africa. Is we just bought um, a set of neoprene socks, camera sleeves uh, for our lenses. So that when we don't have a camera bag or just a rucksack, we can put stuff in without it getting damaged and protected, waterproof, and gives a bit of a, a cushioning. And these are awesome. Like nine ninety nine off Amazon. I don't know why we didn't buy them like three years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Neoprene len um, lens socks. Yeah, they are good. And we've incidentally we've just used Sarah Sarah Farmsworth, a previous uh, podcast guest, was talking about Forbes for. Fords? Photographic. Photographic. I think it's Fords. Is it not a D? Yeah, it could be a D. Yeah. It's in Inverness. It's the only. Purely. It's the only shop up there, and we've just used their <laughs> services. It's the only photographic shop. Only up photographic there. There shop up there. Uh, and we just used their services, and it was very swift. Yeah, to clean one of our cameras, which has never been cleaned before. Yeah. Which I'm going to be taking to Africa. That was the reason that we thought we'd better clean it, since I'm going to be using it. But they deep. said it was actually pretty clean, so yeah. we've been looking after it pretty well. Yeah. So we will leave you good people to it, and join us again in two weeks time if you'd like to get in contact with the show it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com 